Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. In this difficult day, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another, but more importantly to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and greater polarization, or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand compassion and love. You know, something we're really good at as human beings is building walls. Uh, There's one human-made structure that's visible from the moon. It's the Great Wall of China. It's a remarkable image, isn't it? Robert Frost wrote a poem many years ago that starts out with these words, something there is that doesn't love a wall. The poem is written as if by a farmer, and this farmer writes about how he and the neighboring farmer uh, every spring go out to check the wall that divides them, uh, this barrier between them. And every spring they find this strange thing. A few stones have fallen down. They find the wall needs to be repaired. And Frost writes in this poem that it's as if some force of nature doesn't like the wall being there that this force is conspiring against them. They keep building the wall back up, but something keeps tearing the wall back down. He says, we set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. He says, but something inside me asks, why do we need the wall? As a neighbor says, good fences make good neighbors. But Frost says, that's true where there are cows, but there are no cows here. He says, before I build a wall, I'd like to know what I'm walling in and what I'm walling out. And then he concludes with, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Now, one of the most remarkable things Jesus did when he came to this earth was tear down the walls of hostility that divide people in his community. His community consisted of people who, by all rights, should have been bitter enemies of each other. Uh, The rich and the poor, uh, Jewish people and Gentiles, uh, those who were slaves and those who were owners of slaves, men who had great power and women who had none at all. They all stood on equal ground in the fellowship of the cross. And there's a verse that expresses God's passionate commitment to destroy the barriers that divide people who are made in his image. is Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now you have to re reflect for a moment uh, to realize how revolutionary this thought was and how deeply offensive it would have been to all people who wanted to hold on to power or hold on to their prejudice. No more walls, Paul says. Solidarity for the human race. We are all one. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And wherever human beings genuinely discover Jesus, this solidarity movement, this wall tearing down movement goes on. I read this week about a man named Clarence Jordan. Uh, back in the 1950s, he went to preach at a church in the back hills of South Carolina. This was a day when segregation was very commonly practiced. When he got behind the pulpit to preach, he, he looked out over the crowd and much to his surprise, the congregation was made up of a mixture of both white and black people. And he couldn't believe his eyes. And he wondered how this could happen. And so after the service, he went to talk to the old hillbilly preacher who was the pastor of the church. How did you get this way, Clarence Jordan said. And the old hillbilly preacher said, what way? Clarence said, you know, integrated blacks and whites together. Has this come about because of the Supreme Court decision on integration? And the old preacher said, Supreme Court? What's the Supreme Court got to do with Christians? Uh, this was his way of saying that the, the higher, authority, uh, higher authority than the Supreme Court had spoken on this issue 2,000 years ago. Come on, Clarence said, you know you've got a weird church here. How did, it, how did you get it this way? Well, the preacher said, I used to have about 20 members in this church when the last preacher died. But there's hundreds and hundreds of people here now, Clarence said. That's right, said the old hillbilly preacher. When the old preacher died, they couldn't get a new preacher. So after about two months, I told the deacons I'd be the new preacher. Since they didn't have anyone else, they let me preach. Not really an elaborate process. Uh, I got up the next Sunday, opened the Bible, put my finger down, and landed on that verse that says, In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So I preached on that. I told them how Jesus uh, makes all kinds of people one. When I finished, the deacons told me they wanted to talk to me in the back room. When the deacons got there, they told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preaching no more. Clarence asked, well, what did you do? The old hillbilly preacher said, I fired those deacons. <laughs> I mean, if a deacon's not going to deke, he ought to be fired. Clarence was amazed. Why didn't the deacons fire you? They never hired me, he said. You know, once I found out what bothered them, I gave it to them week after week. I put the knife in the same place Sunday after Sunday. Clarence said, did they put up with it? Not really, the preacher answered. I preached that church down to four people. He said, sometimes new life begins not when we get a lot of new people into the church, but when we get some of the old people out of the church. If people are going to stand in the way of the moving of God, they'd better be gone. He said, after that, our goal as Christians was to produce Christians. And Clarence said, well, how can you tell when you've produced Christians? Well, said the old preacher, down here, we've been taught since we were knee high. There are differences between black folk and white folk, and you shouldn't mix. But we know when we get saved, that garbage is gone. We know when we, we got Christians on our hands, when all that evil stuff about race is taken out of folks' hearts. When we got some Christians in this church, 
it started to grow and to grow, and that's how we got to be the way we are today. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Uh, now, at the heart of our inability to get along is how we deal with what might be called otherness in human beings. Uh, this is behind how I relate to someone of a different language or culture or gender or color or socioeconomic background. And the basic problem is otherness. And issues of racism, sexism, and class conflict all are expressions of our inability to love. Now take two siblings. They come from the same ethnic group, uh, same gene pool, same language, same culture, same family, same parents, same home. All the barriers that we think of as creating problems are gone. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known of a home where there were siblings and despite the shared ethnic and cultural heritage, somewhere along the line, they experienced some conflict? Have you ever known a home where it's amazing the siblings are still alive today? You see, the truth that is that the ultimate location of this problem has to do with the fallenness of the human heart. A theology professor put it like this. He said, at the core of human sin is the desire to separate. We desire to separate other people from our lives or from our hearts. We desire to separate ourselves from God. We build dividing walls of hostility. At the heart of sin, he says, is separation. Now, let me say this. There is an anatomy of racism, and it's a very, very simple structure. And the first aspect is separation. The first thing racism does is it separates people. Uh, if you read the New Testament, you'll see there, were often anim there was often animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the Jews said to the Gentiles, uh, we need you to be as far away from us because we and you are not the same. And the first thing racism does is it takes a person and it places them in a position as far away from me as possible. But then there's a second thing that happens. The second thing that racism says is, I'm better than you. The anatomy of racism takes on two aspects. First is separation. The second is supremacy. Most people don't see this when they think of things they do that might be racist. Uh, but think about the last time you made a distinction between you and someone else. Did you say, this person is different and they're better than I am? Or did you say, they're different and you found a reason to separate yourself from them? Now, there's no other way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Uh, when we have this wall-building mentality in ourselves, uh, when we think we're superior or when we separate ourselves or when we make demeaning comments against people of another race, it's sin. It's wrong. That doesn't mean we can't have disagreements. Uh, we may have many. It just means it's wrong to separate yourself and to demean them. And the reason that demeaning others is sin is because everyone is made in the image of God. When we demean any person, we're demeaning the very God in whose image they were made. So sin involves this desire to separate someone from a neighborhood or a school, or a job, or even a church. But more than that, sin is the choice to separate someone from your heart. 
from your life. It's a failure to love. A friend shared a story on social media this week. Uh, She's a white woman with five children. Uh, Three are white and two are black. And this story really moved me because I have two black children who are similar ages. And this is what she writes. One summer day, I let my two black children go for a walk in the neighborhood by themselves. My son desperately wanted to work to earn money. A neighbor had mentioned he was such a hard worker around the house that he should offer to do yard work or dog walking in the neighborhood for a small fee. He had been begging me for weeks to let, me, to let him ask the neighbors, but I wouldn't. Uh, not because I didn't trust him or because he wasn't responsible or respectful or because he wasn't old enough. It's because I was concerned because he was black. This particular day, he was persistent and I don't operate out of fear and I didn't want my son to either. So finally, I gave in with the instructions that he and his sister stay together and not walk in anyone's yard and to be respectful. They always were. I just wanted to remind them to keep them safe. Off they went, thrilled that they had some freedom and responsibility. When they came back, I asked if they had found any neighbors that needed help. Uh, They hadn't, but my son wasn't phased. He planned to go out the next day because several people weren't home. 30 minutes later, the local county sheriff was at our house. My son came to my room and said, hey mom, there's a police officer at the door. And I bristled and began to shake. I quickly self-corrected as I wanted to remain calm for my children. I walked around the corner and could see the officer with his hand on his gun. And I calmly said, can I help you, sir? He immediately shifted when he saw me. It was clear he didn't expect me to be white. And in the moment, I felt my privilege in a tangible way. What would his response have been if I had been black? He could hardly speak clearly as he fell over his words asking if I lived there and if I'd seen anyone in the neighborhood that didn't belong. I asked for clarity on what he was asking me. He then pointed to my son and asked if he lived here. I said, yes, this is my son. He again seemed at a loss for words. He asked if he had been home all day and I quickly realized where this was going. I explained that for the first time ever, I had allowed my two youngest children to go outside without one of their older white siblings. This officer didn't have any idea what he had just gotten himself into. He listened to me and he commended my son and said he wished his son wanted to earn some money. I asked him why he was called and he struggled to tell me that someone had called the police because there had been a series of car break-ins and they saw suspicious people knocking on doors and looking in cars. My kids did not look in cars. They walked by cars as they were walking in their own neighborhood. The officer was kind and understanding when I called out that what I thought was blatant racism, especially because the house in question knew my children lived in the neighborhood. He didn't disagree, but was quiet on the matter. I let him know that I now understood clearly that, I was un- that it was unsafe for my children to walk around their neighborhood by themselves because of the color of their skin. I assured him it wouldn't hap- happen again for their own safety. And he put his head down, apologized, and left. As soon as the door closed, my two precious children burst into tears, and I held them close, and I just wept. And immediately I called my husband and told him to come home. And then I updated our older kids who weren't home, 
Soon everyone was in the house affirming the kids and speaking truth over them. We prayed for the callers and begged God to heal our land. All of this seemed like too much, but it wasn't enough for me. I wanted to know how my children's names would be used in a report and how to get it, to re- how to get it removed. I wanted to know exactly what the report said and how I could file a complaint against these false reporters. I wanted justice for my children. She says, for the first time, I felt the tinge of what black mothers must feel when their children are wrongly accused and targeted. What I discovered in the police report was more than my heart could take. The woman that called the police described my children as rattling door handles on houses and attempting to open car doors. None of that happened. My son opened a screen door to knock on the door because there was no doorbell. They walked by cars in the driveway. They didn't touch them. Because of what one woman said, this was classified as a robbery in progress. We live in an uncorporated area of an affluent yet somewhat diverse town. The county sheriff was dispatched and the police surrounded the perimeter of our neighborhood. They were searching for robbers. And I have no idea what my children would have done if they had been surrounded and shouted at. They were babies. I'm afraid they would have run. This scenario plays over and over in my mind. What if they hadn't come home? What if their fear told them to flee? And she goes on to say, I don't blame the officers. They had no idea what they were walking into that day. They only knew what was called in. And I have to tell you, when I read that, uh, I read that through tears, thinking, what if that was Aaron and Ezra? Like, what if that was my son and daughter? And I pray God protects our family from that kind of racism. You know, in extreme cases of racism, there's a term for the attempts of one ethnic group to eradicate another ethnic group. It's not called ethnic murder. It's not called ethnic genocide. You know what it's called? Ethnic cleansing. In other words, ethnic otherness is filth that needs to be washed away. Someone who is different than me pollutes my ethnic space and needs to be removed. Now the truth is, I know all about the sin of separation and the failure to love because I too am guilty of it. Maybe not as blatantly as the woman in the story who called the police. Certainly not as horrifyingly cruel as the men who hunted down Ahmaud Arbery. But in my own way, in my own apathy, in my own complacency, I too live behind a wall. And the reality is, so have some of you. And maybe the place where we all need to start is simply with repenting. I know some of you know what this business of separation is about because you've been on the receiving end of someone separating themselves from you because of the color of your skin or the way you look or your level of education or your economic status or your gender. You know what it is for people to separate themselves from you. You know what it is to be frozen out or to receive a word or even a glance that says, you're not one of us. You don't belong here. But listen, the writers of scripture say that every human being was created in the image of God so that to demean any one of them 
is to demean the God in whose image they were created. You see, human beings have this tendency to make God over in our own image. If you look at the pictures of God created by tribes or nations all over the world, you'll notice that their pictures of God tend to look like the pictures of them. Uh, There's one whole book that's devoted to pictures of Jesus. And depending on the country or the artist, you get a Jesus who looks Greek or Italian or Ethiopian or whatever country the artist happens to come from. But we can't get around the truth. And the truth is, he was Dutch. Uh, And his last name was Van Cleef. Do you remember Archie Bunker? Uh, Archie Bunker one time was having an argument with his black neighbor, uh, George Jefferson, about the nature of God. Uh, It was a theological argument. It was a very interesting argument. And Archie maintains that God, of course, is white because man is created in the image of God and Archie is a man and Archie is white. Therefore, God must be white. And George George Jefferson asks him, but how do you know? And Archie has to think about it for a moment. And he says, well, every picture I've ever seen of God is white. Michelangelo and all those guys have pictures of God uh, and he's always white. And George Jefferson says, maybe you've been looking at the negative. It's kind of an interesting theological point. There's a story in the Bible about the apostle Peter Uh, Peter had a series of dreams in which he discovers that God not only loves Jewish people, but God also loves Gentile people. And in fact, God wants Peter to go be with the Gentiles and to have fellowship with them and even to eat with them, which was a gesture of intimacy and closeness. And Peter was horrified by this until finally it dawned on him that Gentiles Uh, like the people of Israel, were beloved by God. And this is what he says. And I mean, this just struck him like lightning. Peter began to speak as a result of this long encounter with God. And he comes to this new realization. I now realize how true it is that God treats everyone on the same basis. He's astounded to discover that God is bigger than any one ethnic group. Now, the truly amazing thing is that God himself knows what separation feels like. God knows. Listen, it's no accident that when Jesus was born, Jesus, God in human form, when he was born, he was born into a race that had been persecuted, had been separated for centuries. It's no accident that when Jesus was born, he was born not into a family of wealth and power, but into a blue-collar family. It's no accident that even as an adult, Jesus could say that foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but he, the Son of Man, had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. It's no accident that many of his closest and most devoted followers Uh, the first witnesses of his resurrection, and some of the most significant leaders of his early church were women. And you have to understand, in Jesus' day, that was a shocking thing. It's no accident that the kind of people who were most separated in Jesus' day were the kind of people Jesus embraced. And they lived the kind of life Jesus chose to live. For the good news is that God embraces human beings, all human beings. 
everyone who will allow him. Most especially, God announces his embrace to those who on this earth are most separated. This is from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The writers of scripture say the foundation for the unity of the human race, the only power strong enough to overcome the power of sin that divides us is the power of the cross. So that whenever human beings turn to Jesus, the wall must come down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down, and it's God. The force in this universe that wants the wall down the wall that separates human beings from other human beings is God. And he wants it down so badly. He wants it down badly enough to go to the cross. God's dream is a dream of a people with no walls. And hopefully, hopefully in our church, you kind of get a taste of that. But even if not, even if we haven't fully arrived yet, which we haven't, you need to know God's heart on this. You and I are called to become agents of reconciliation. You and I are called to tear down the walls that divide us from other people. And it's not always an easy thing. And so I'm gonna ask you to spend some time just examining your own heart and your own attitudes and your own behavior. As you relate to people who are different, have different accents or different skin color, or are from a different uh, culture, do you separate them from your heart? Or is there a kind of openness about you? Do you deal with people the way Jesus would? Do you talk about people the way Jesus would? I wanna challenge all of us to take a next step this week. One of the most powerful things you and I can do is to cultivate significant relationships with people from diverse backgrounds. I was reading this week about the civil rights era, and I'll tell you my favorite story. It's about a little first grade girl who went on her first day to a newly integrated school in the South in the time of the integration storm. And her mom met her at the door at the end of the day and said, honey, how did everything go? And her daughter said, mom, uh, you know what? A little black girl sat next to me. And her mom knew this was a new experience and wasn't sure how to respond or how big of a deal to make out of it. And so she said, well, honey, what happened? And her daughter said, oh, mommy, we were both so scared that we held hands all day. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Who are you holding hands with? Who are you refusing to hold hands with? Last verse that we'll look at. And it talks about what life will look like one day in the kingdom of God. It's from the book of Revelation. It's addressed to Jesus, and this is what it says. For you, that is for Jesus, for you were killed, so his death on a cross. 
For you were killed, and by your sacrificial death, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they shall rule on earth. Now take a moment to see what this writer of scripture pictures here. Uh, Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And then there will be, the writer of scripture says, no more fences, no more barriers, no more dividing walls of hostility. Almost 60 years ago now, a preacher stood in front of 100,000 Americans at the base of the Lincoln Memorial, and he said, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my four little children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream of the day when the sons and the daughters of former slaves and the sons and the daughters of former slave owners will sit together at the table of fellowship. He said, I have a dream that all of God's children will one day be able to sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And the reason 100,000 people wept and shouted and prayed and laughed and cried is that it wasn't his dream. It was God's dream. And they may have killed the dreamer, but the dream goes on. Because something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And one day, God will have his dream. And one day, there will be no more walls. Only one great, vast family of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All right, let's pray as the band gets ready to lead us in a closing song. God, I just pray that you would examine our hearts. Wherever there is racism, wherever there is a separation, where we separate other people based on the color of their skin, based on the culture or the way they speak, I pray that you would remove that from our hearts. God, would your Holy Spirit begin to do that work in us? And God, I I pray that you would help us to tear down the walls of hate in our church, in our community, and in our society. God, would you use us to make a difference in this regard as your church? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.